At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. For many years, many have asked the question, what if God was one of us? Through the incarnation of Jesus, God answered that question, and Jesus became one of us. Every year for centuries, Christians have celebrated the miracle of Jesus' birth. This Christmas season, we're diving into a new series, Emmanuel, God with us. Learning how the arrival of Jesus Christ changes everything. He came to save us, a broken and crooked world of fallen people. Join us this Christmas as we explore the miracle of Jesus' incarnation and the impact it still has on us. morning. You know, Jacob was kind enough to mention that when we were together, <clears throat> excuse me, in, in Nashville, that I was the only person at the table that couldn't finish his Nashville's hot chicken. Rumor has it that there's a, a picture somewhere floating out there, but I'll neither uh, confirm or, or deny uh, if, if, if that's around. I'm so thankful to be with you all uh, here this morning. You know, this is the season of three C's, coughs, colds, and Christ. And recently, I had a cold for probably about six weeks ago, but you know how it is. Sometimes, like, even though you're no longer contagious or anything like that, the, the cough just kind of persists. So I ask your grace, if I cough a little bit up here, I'll try to stay as hydrated as possible. Uh, but that, that cough does uh, persist a bit here. Uh, thanks so much, uh, Jacob, again, for the invitation to speak. I never take it lightly whenever I get the chance to speak. Uh, in front of in front of God's people, our eternal uh, brothers and sisters in here, and thank you too, especially um, to you all here in the second service. Uh, my family and I—we've been so warmly greeted by you all, and it feels like such a family. Like like Jacob mentioned, we used to go to the Dearborn campus, and then we came here after uh, it, it it dissolved. And really, you know, right from the beginning, we felt such hospitality. Uh, from you all. So thank you again so much. Now, if you, if you haven't had the chance to meet my family, let me give you a quick picture of, of what we might look like. So if you've ever been driving or riding your bike or walking or anything like that, you probably saw a row of ducks before, right? And so you you've saw like the little ducklings and then bookending those, that line of ducks is the adults. That's us. It's my wife and I. We got two, two of our kids uh, here uh, all the way from ages 14 to 2, Braden, Bryson, Braylon, and Brevin. Yes, I'm a pastor and I love alliteration. And the next question that everyone always asks is, well, what's your wife's name? Chantel. So she's, you can see she's, she's the gracious one of, of the family to allow this uh, be convincing, naming convincing uh, to, to continue. Again, thank you so much. I'm so delighted to be with you all this morning. You know, I mentioned that we have uh, four kids, and our youngest, who's probably running amok in the, in the kids' nursery right now, is Brevin. He's two years old, and recently I was upstairs with him. So I'm in the living room with Brevin. It's me, me and him. My wife is downstairs. The kids are elsewhere in the house running amok, probably creating some type of terror. And me and, I don't know if you've ever had this kind of interaction with a toddler, right? So toddlers are at that age and stage of life where they can communicate with you, but they're not quite completing like full sentences. So you can discern some of the words and things like that. But especially as a parent, you feel happy, you feel prideful that you know your child well enough that because you know their mannerisms and everything, that you know what they're trying to say. 
or so I thought. And so Brevin and I are going back and forth for like 15 minutes. And I don't know if you've ever had one of these interactions with a toddler before, but no matter what your, what your, uh, your, your height is, your authority, how deep your voice is, no matter what, the more a toddler feels like they're getting frustrated, the more you feel like you're on the losing end of this relationship. And so we're having this interaction. He's making these sounds. I'm pointing to everything in the room that I think he's talking to. I'm getting discouraged. He's getting frustrated. So my wife comes upstairs, instantly hears the sounds that he's making, grabs the remote, turns on some, um, what is it called? Super simple songs, the, this little duck, duck song that my, my son loves, smiles, walks back downstairs. Now Brevin is staring at the TV, laughing and jumping, and I'm standing there wondering, do I actually know my child or not? And I'm wondering, and you know, in those moments, I'm particularly thankful for words. Have you ever had those moments where you've been particularly thankful for words? Maybe, like me, it was with a run-in with an angry toddler. But you know, words are vital to clear communication, and communication is crucial to vibrant and flourishing relationships. You know, one of the most astounding characteristics of the God of the Bible is that He is a God who speaks to us who desires to communicate with us. You know, for some time, I had the opportunity to travel as a full-time itinerant Christian apologist. And if you're not familiar with what that means, Christian apolo- Christian, uh, an apologist comes from the Bible verse, uh, 1 Peter 3.15, and it's the idea of one who defends and communicates the truth, the beauty, and the goodness of the Christian faith. Now, really, I just had the opportunity to do this as a full-time vocation, but if you're within the sound of my voice, you're a Christian, and you're ever engaged in conversations about the faith, you're doing apologetics, okay? But one of the things that I would always get one of the, I would say, top 10 questions or concerns that I would get was concerning this idea of God's silence or what theologians often call the the hiddenness of God. And the reason that question or that, that subject is so prevalent because we all inherently desire to hear from God, to communicate with God. When we're in despair, we long for God to comfort us. When we're in confusion, we long for God to bring us clarity. When we're lonely, we long to know that God is present and that he cares for us and loves us. And I'm so thankful. I'm thankful that we serve a God who is not aloof, who has not abandoned us, but he loves us so much and cares for us so much, and he desires for us to be in relationship with him. My friends, God has spoken, and he's spoken actually very, from the very beginning of time. In the Garden of Eden, we find that in the first 31 verses of the first chapter of the Bible, references to God saying or God naming something almost 15, about 15 times. And then after that, God created us humans so that we could hear from him. And communication between God and humans occur from our physical senses and our spiritual nature. And it's in, it's, it's in his unlimited wisdom and power that God communicates to us as people. But he not only spoke at the beginning of the Bible, he not only spoke and, and created us as beings who can communicate with him, he also spoke to us through what he's made. In fact, the Bible commentator Kent Hughes called it God's cosmic eloquence. God's cosmic eloquence. 
And it was King David who marveled, marveled at God, at the majesty of nature, the design of the universe, and it inspired him to write Psalm 19. In Psalm 19, verses 1 through 2, David writes, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. God so very eloquently speaks to us through what he has made. And there have been dozens, hundreds of Christians and non-Christian astronomers throughout the centuries who have marveled, simply marveled at God's creation. In the book, The Story of the Cosmos, How the Heavens Declare the Glory of God, Daniel Ray writes this, The heavens speak to us in a simple yet deeply profound iridescent prose we can all understand, but one that is also intensely mysterious. The humblest child, the most insightful poet, and the most erudite astrophysicist can all understand and appreciate what the skies proclaim. The discipline of modern astronomy tells us plainly the universe itself is a message of weighty significance. We cannot help but listen. So the next time that you're out on a nature walk or you might be in a canoe or perhaps you're fishing, don't think that, the, that God created the universe for us just to look at and marvel at. He didn't just create the universe to show how incredible of an artist he is. and He didn't just create it to be a standard, beautiful canvas that we all can appreciate it. No, God created it primarily as a message, a message of weighty significance to me and to you all in here. But not only did God communicate through what he made, he also spoke words to and through us, uh, through people. Throughout biblical history, God spoke, sometimes through angelic messengers, through audible voices, through visions, through dreams. He spoke to some of the, some of the usual suspects that we know, right? Noah and Abraham, Jacob and Moses. And then he began to point out specific people to be prophets. And the Bible specifically names about 90, 90 people or so who are called to be prophets. Some of these include Isaiah and Ezekiel, Daniel, Habakkuk, Malachi. Some were farmers and kings, priests and scholars. But it was their shared ability to say two words, two words, God says, that gave them incredible authority to people. And they were speaking for God. Many of their messages were written down and preserved for us in scriptures. And through their ministry as God's spokesman, they had a specific purpose at that time. A couple of these were when Samuel was speaking during the reign of King David, or perhaps when Isaiah was speaking for God in preparation for the Babylonian exile. Their ministry has bearing on us today, and because of their speaking God's word, we know something about God's character, how he's worked in the past, how he's working in the present, and how he's working in the future. Now, the text we'll study today addresses this reality even further. Now, let's look together at Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and specifically at verse 1. We're going to start there. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. 
You know, this, this letter, this epistle, it really starts out different than some of the other ones that we read. The other ones start off with like a salutation, dear brothers and sisters, dearly beloved, these types of things. But, but I'm, I'm struck by how the writer is actually struck by the various ways that God has spoken throughout the past. Now, the first century hearers, they would hear this and they would be intimately acquainted with the ways in which God has spoken in the past. Again, through visions and angels, prophets and events across thousands and thousands of years. And if we call him speaking to us through nature, through the cosmos, his cosmic eloquence, then we can call him speaking to us through people and specifically prophets, his prophetic eloquence. So we have cosmic eloquence and we have prophetic eloquence. And it was his disciple Peter who reflected on this prophetic eloquence. And he wrote in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 21, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as though they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In other words, it's saying no man came up with these words in and of themselves. It was the Holy Spirit that inspired these words on behalf of God to them and for us today. Now, there was a number of prophecies all throughout the Old Testament, and I'm going to, take you, uh, I'm going to give you a quick glance for, uh, of a couple of these. To Noah, the quarter of the world to which Messiah should belong was revealed. To Abraham, the nation. To Jacob, the tribe. To David and Isaiah, the family. To Micah, the town of nativity. To Daniel, the exact time. To Malachi, the coming of his forerunner and his second advent. To Jonah, his burial and resurrection. And through Isaiah and Hosea, his resurrection. How incredibly kind and generous that we have a God who speaks to us, not only through the cosmos, but also through human messengers. But it leaves us, it leaves us with this question here. Has what God said, is that enough? Is there still some communication barrier that exists between God and us? Is there something better than hearing from God through the prophets? And is there something better than hearing the words of, of the prophets recorded in the scriptures? Well, during this Christmas season, we'll be celebrating the incredible impact made by God's coming to be with us. As the band played earlier, Emmanuel, be God with us. That God has come to be with us. And we can celebrate that there is something better than God's cosmic eloquence. There, there is something better than God's prophetic eloquence, but there's also his, his incarnate eloquence. God literally came to be with us. And this communication from God causes us to hear, to hear God's ultimate word. I'll direct you to your bulletin there, for the big idea. Hear God's ultimate word. We often see it. We often read it. We often have knowledge of it, but do we hear, do we hear God's ultimate word? Now, in a minute, we'll reread the, those verses from Hebrew that Jacob read earlier, so they're fresh on our minds and our hearts. But let me back up and tell you a little bit about the, the book of Hebrews, because since we're in our Christmas series here, we're not going to go, uh, it's more thematic, we're not going uh, verse by verse or chapter by chapter, but I still want you to know something, so a couple of things that's very important about the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is sort of an inherently ironic book. There's this mysterious element to it because we simply don't know who wrote it. So there's ambiguity in the authorship. 
But even, even with this overarching, enigmatic facet of Hebrews, there's also incredible clarity about Christ. There's incredible clarity about who Christ is, about what he's done, and about how he continues to work throughout, throughout history. And one of the primary points of Hebrews is about perseverance. You see, we know throughout the historical record and from the Bible itself that the writer wrote this to Jewish Christians. And he wrote this because these Jewish Christians were facing all types of incredible perseverance. They were facing this perseverance because they were, all, they were under Roman occupation. And the Romans were okay. They were okay with Jewish customs, but not those of Jewish Christian customs. And so because they were facing this perseverance, it caused many of Jewish Christians to think about, to consider, or to even go back to Jewish customs that did not recognize Jesus as Messiah. I wonder for us in here today, maybe even over this past week, how many of us have been tempted, have been enticed to go back to our former ways, ways that preceded our faith and our trust in Christ. We all know that, the, that we go through a spiritual journey, that there will indeed be hills and valleys. There'll be times where we feel like we're doing well, and we're, we're, there'll be times where we feel like we're doing nothing but wrong. But just know that in Hebrews, God compels you, God tells you to persevere, to persevere because of who Christ is. Now let's read this passage again, Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, to whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent, more excellent than theirs. And as we look closer at this, this passage, there'll be three ways in which we consider that Jesus, God's son, is the ultimate word from God. The first is that Jesus is God's creating word. Verse two, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. The writer describes God as continuing to speak, but this time, this time, in a new way. And this new revelation is superior to the old, but it also, it also builds upon it because the same God who spoke to the fathers, our ancestors in the faith, also speaks to us. And my friends, this is the transcendent, transcendent beauty of Scripture, that although it was written to its first century hearers, it is also relevant for us today. Now, he speaks to us again by his son. But who is God's son? Multiple passages in, in, in the Gospels actually reveal God's affirming that Jesus, whose birthday we celebrate this season, is God's son. For example, we have in Luke chapter 1, verses 20, uh, 35, the angel that came to Mary told her, the child to be born to you will be called holy, the son of God. In Luke chapter 4, we read, years later at Jesus' baptism, a voice, from, a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you, with whom you, I am well pleased. 
And multiple times, Jesus referred to himself as the Son of God and God as his Father. And we have this beautiful track record of the early church in the book of Acts. And in Acts, the early church knew that Jesus was God's Son based on the resurrection. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As the son of God, he's described as the heir of all things and creator of the world. Jesus chapter, uh, John chapter 1 verse 2 declares, all things were made through him and without him was not anything anything, not anything was made. Jesus was there right from the very beginning. And as the creator of the universe, he, he is its natural heir. Everything in the universe has its natural purpose and destiny in the air. And as Paul declared, all things were created by him and for him. And this means Jesus is greater than all things. And everything, everything submits, submits to Jesus. As creator, he is the ultimate word from God. You know, I'm thankful that, that God has, has gifted me in, in many ways, but I also realize there's, there's a few things that he left out of my, uh, my talent pool here. And one of those is seemingly any rudimentary or ordinary uh, house repairs. My wife is probably over there giggling uh, right now in affirmation of that. But... You know, for me, I don't know about you, maybe this is a congregation full of able-bodied men and women, and God bless you. I love to learn from you. But for me, you know, sometimes I get inspired, so I go to YouTube, and I'll try to do something. My most recent uh, um, job, I'll say, was to fix the doorknob on our bathroom. I won't tell you how long it took me to do that, but I did get it accomplished. That's the most important thing. But I'll look at these YouTube videos, and, you know, it'll feel inspiring. I see these women and men doing this inc- these incredible house repairs, and in four steps, you can do this. I just wonder why I'm at step 15, and it looks worse now than it, than it did when I, when I began the project. You know, what would be helpful for me is if I had an expert or the manufacturer right there to help me and to guide me. And that's what we have in Jesus. What an incredible reality that the designer, the creator, the sustainer of all things from whom which everything submits to him is Emmanuel, God with us. How incredible a reality. Again, Jesus, the son of God, our creator, our sustainer, heir of all things, is the ultimate word from God. Remember back in verse 1, it said that he spoke to the fathers through the prophets, so they, have, they had received revelation, but it was only these, these fragmentary glimpses. In Jesus, we have the full greatness of who God is. The Net Bible puts it like this, while reflecting on the, on the meaning of the phrase, his son. He is no mere spokesman or prophet for God, nor is he merely a heavenly messenger or angel. Instead, this final revelation comes through one who is intimately, intimately acquainted with the Heavenly Father in a way that only a family member could be. You know, there are many other religions that talk about Jesus, but they certainly don't talk about the Jesus that we know and love. They talk about Jesus as being a prophet, 
They talk about Jesus as being a messenger of some sort. But Scripture emphatically and flatly rejects such a demotion of God's character, of Jesus' character in nature. Jesus is no mere anything. He lacks nothing. Jesus is indeed God. And through knowing him, through knowing him, we hear God speak of purpose and meaning, things that we all search for in life. We receive direction and wisdom as we navigate through life. By knowing Jesus, we find wisdom for dealing with friends at school, for dealing with coworkers at work, for having a healthy marriage, raising our kids, planning for retirement. All of these things, no one speaks to these things better than the designer and the heir of it all. But the description of this incarnate eloquence continues. Not only is he the creating word, but he's also the revealing word. In verse 3, we read, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. The word radiance really struck a chord with me when I was reading this, this passage. What comes to your mind when you hear the word radiance? For me, I'm reminded, I grew up in, in Detroit, over on the, off the east side, near Cashew and, and Harper kind of area near I-94. So if, you're, if you have the Detroit geography in your mind, maybe you can picture a bit where I'm at. So as a youth, I used to ride my bike all the way down to Gross Point to the lake and marvel at the beauty of the lake and drive back up. And I can hear Jackie Cleaver, my mom, in my mind saying, reminding me, Brandon, be home before it's dark outside. And oftentimes, I would be a little bit late, so I would be rushing, rushing to get back home. But I knew no matter, as the sun went down, that there would be street lights that illuminated my way back home. And that's what we find in Jesus. Jesus is the radiance, or rather, he's illuminating or bringing further clarity to the glory of God. Now, the term glory or doxa is used in Scripture with reference, above all, to the visible presence of God. And we have a couple of different examples of that in the Old Testament. For example, think of when the glory of God appeared like a cloud to guide the people from Egypt, or the glory of God resting on Mount Sinai as God gave Moses the law. Or how about the glory of the God filling the temple dedicated by Solomon? But God's Son is not only a visible or the visible, but also the physical presence of God among the people. Now, that phrase, the exact imprint, actually refers to the Son as the exact representation of who He is, of His being. And this clearly stands in contrast to being in the mere appearance of. So what God is, the Son is. They share the the same imprint of being. Now, that's different from us, because in Genesis chapter 1, verses 27, it says that we're created in his image, but we're not his imprint. So that's an important qualitative difference that we're to remember. Yet the perfect copy of his nature maintains the distinctiveness of the Son and the Father. And all that means is that though the Son and the Father share the same imprint, they're also still distinct persons within the Godhead itself. 
And what we find here is that the, the writer, with this, this utter confidence, revels in the thought that God's very presence physically lived among us, among us, in the person of Jesus. What could be better? What form of communication could be better than God coming to speak, God speaking to humans by becoming human and, and, and coming here to live amongst us? Far better than telling us about himself through messengers like prophets and angels and visions and events. The ultimate word from God is himself, God himself coming in human flesh, literally donning human flesh to be amongst us. What better communication could there possibly be from God? John called this in uh, chapter 1, verses, uh, verses 1. He said, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was always there. Now, what best shapes your understanding of God? Perhaps it's bloggers, one of the latest documentaries, YouTube shorts. All of these things often impact how we see God, who God is, and what, it, what he has said about us. But perhaps I'll ask a different question. Perhaps our own opinions our own thoughts, devoid of Scripture, has also impacted how we see him. And let me tell you, friends, our reasoning and those of others will fall woefully short, woefully short of accuracy. And the worst thing that we could possibly do is form a God in our image. You know, as, as when I was uh, full-time as an apologist and I would speak to so many different things, what I would often see when I would talk to people who profess uh, to be uh, to, to, to follow some type of God or to profess some type of spirituality, what they would often do is talk, about, talk to me about what they believe. And what I would find upon listening is that it was sort of a smorgasbord of different parts of other religions. They would pick from this religion and from this God and from this spirituality, and they would form their own God. But you know one thing I often notice? They often would not pick the things that were difficult in those religions. What they would do is create a spirituality or a God that really just fits their own desires and their own needs. That isn't the God of the Bible, my friends. That's idolatry. Let me encourage you to look to Jesus. How he lived, whom he loved, how he worked, what he taught. As Jesus said to Thomas, if you had known me, you would have known the Father also. But from now on, you do know me and have seen him. You have seen him. God wants to know you personally and experientially. He didn't just come to to simply form some type of religious system or to be a good example for us. Jesus came to reveal God in a language that we can all understand. He came so that we can know and relate to God. We can be in relationship with him. And his coming invited all of us, all of us to believe in him and find life life everlasting in him. But you know, there's still a a hindrance, a hindrance in our hearing. Though Jesus revealed God through his life, his teachings, his work, we still remain with this sense of sort of spiritual hearing impairedness. And this next description, the last one, is so very important. Because as Jesus, Jesus is the ultimate word, he is also, he's also the saving word. Jesus is the saving word. Verses three and four. 
Having made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as superior, superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. You know, throughout history, throughout history, you know, earlier I mentioned that there was this, this idea that I would constantly get as an apologist, that people would talk about the silence of God or the hiddenness of God. What we often do when we're not hearing from God, we point the finger at him. We say, God, why aren't you talking to me? Why have you left me alone? God, why are you not speaking to me? Can't you find better ways to communicate with me? But what we often don't do is point the finger to ourselves. We often don't say to ourselves, am I listening? Am I hearing you? Do I even want to hear what you're saying to me? You see, a sin, sin that has severed our relationship with God. Sin drove Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve excuse me, out of the garden where God would spend time with them. Sin kept people from physically approaching God, which is why God established this sacrificial system where an innocent animal would have to be sacrificed to atone for sinful people. But the problem is this was a constant process. People kept on sinning, and it kept requiring more purifying sacrifices. And the writer of Hebrews turns from Jesus, from who he is, to what he has done. He has made purification for sins by offering himself on the cross as the complete sacrifice once and for all. I love this phrase. Jesus is God's unrepeatable sacrificial provision. A provision that would purify our contaminated and ruined condition. No one, no one is more innocent than holy God who always does what is good and right and perfect. And no one can represent all of humanity better, better than their creator. Cleansing from sin can only be accomplished by the work of the Son of God. There are so many religions that posit a work-based salvation. And if you're unfamiliar with what that means, that just simply means that it's the idea that our good deeds have to some way outweigh our bad deeds. I don't know about you, but I couldn't imagine living with the weight of that constant insecurity around me, constantly asking myself, God, have I done enough? Have I done enough good deeds to outweigh my bad ones? How about the sins of, commi- uh, of omission, those things that I failed to do, but I should have been doing? Have I been aware enough of those to outweigh my bad deeds? But we don't have this in Christianity. Our purification is not based on a do this requirement. It's based on a trust this, or I should say, trust him. The best and brightest among us. And I'm sure we can all think of some people in our mind fall tragically short of the payment required for our sin and rebellion. But the God who never fails completely provides the cleansing we all, all desperately need. And having, having accomplished this satisfying, this, uh, this satisfying sacrifice, Jesus was raised from the dead to validate his identity and work. He showed himself to hundreds of eyewitnesses, which we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He commissioned his followers to tell the whole world what he has done. And he returned to the Father in heaven and sat down 
at his father's right hand. There he remains interceding for all, all who come to him through Jesus. You know, sometimes the hardest thing for us to do is to listen. We read, we see, we hear, but we don't listen too well. Instead of our understanding being shaped by God's ultimate word, it's shaped by the chaotic commotion of culture. You see, it's culture who will often tell you that you have made some mistakes, that you have made some bad choices, and that though you have pledged your allegiance, your faith to Jesus Christ, you are not worthy. You are not loved. It's it's culture that will tell you, don't trust the God of the Bible. He can't be trusted. But let me ask you, are you ready to willing, are you ready and willing to listen to a better word? The ultimate word, the incarnate eloquence of Jesus, God's son. Jesus is the ultimate word from God. And he has spoken not only from his lips, but also through his actions. Have you trusted? Have you trusted what he's done on the cross? If not, This is a wonderful season, wonderful season for you to receive from God the complete and utter cleansing that can only be provided through faith in him. And with your sins forgiven, you, my friends, are made right, right with God and brought into relationship with him. As it's written later in Hebrews chapter 10, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, Let us draw near with a true heart of assurance, a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean. Don't let the outside world twist and contort the reality and the efficacy of the cross. You know, oftentimes we we come through these, these church doors and we're greeted by wonderful men and women, and we have a smile as we greet everyone. But oftentimes, what's really on our mind and on our heart is sorrow, is despair, is doubt, is confusion, is frustration. Really, our real countenance is one of melancholiness. I don't know if you're that person in this room today. I don't know if within the sound of my voice, if someone is hearing this and feels this. But let me tell you, my friends, if you have trusted in God, if you have placed your faith and your trust in him, you are loved. You are redeemed. Don't let the world tell you otherwise. And for those of you who have not received him as Lord and Savior, you can experience the close personal relationship that he has created for you to enjoy. Open your heart to him, welcome his cleansing, and experience the joy he offers. And I'll be right down here in front of the service to talk to you, to pray with you, or to answer any questions that you might have. I'm coming to a close here, but in the front of our house, there's this big bay window. And as Jacob mentioned earlier, I have to travel quite a bit with my, my job with Matthew, the Matthew 5-9 Fellowship. And in traveling, oftentimes, when I'm, when I'm backing down the driveway in that big, beautiful bay window, I see those five beautiful faces from my family waving as I'm leaving. And for me, it's, it's a paradox. It's both a, a beautiful, lasting image as I go to get on that plane. 
but it's also one of brokenheartedness because I won't be in their presence. Sure, I have a phone, I can call them, I can FaceTime them, but it's nothing like being there with them. We're separated. And that's what sin has done. Sin has separated us, separated us from our relationship with God. But as much as that separation from my family hurts, seeing their smiling faces in that same window to greet me when I come back home is so gratifying. There's nothing, nothing like being together again. That's what Jesus wants for you. He wants you to come home. The Father longs to share, to share his glory with you. He's given glimpses throughout time, but they've been too ambiguous and limited. Nothing reveals God more than Jesus. There's no greater word from God than, his, than Jesus, his son, the creator and sustainer, the, perfect, the perfecter, the revealer, the son, the savior of all who trust in him. Jesus came so that you, that you can be together with God. Let this be the day that you embrace perfect hearing by committing your life, by knowing, following, and enjoying the ultimate word of God. Let's pray. Gracious and heavenly Father, my goodness, you've been so kind to us. You've been so incredibly generous to us that while many of us were running the opposite way, you sought us. And now that we're firmly within your grasp, Lord, I pray that you would keep us there. Help us to remember in those hills and valleys throughout this spiritual journey, Lord, that no matter what, we can have, as it says in Hebrews 10, full assurance of our faith in you. You've spoken to us, Lord, through the cosmos, through your cosmic eloquence. You've spoken to us, Lord, through people, through your prophetic eloquence. But none of those, none of those compare to Jesus, the incarnate eloquence. Pray, Lord, that we would remember that, particularly in this Advent season, that we remember that God came to be with us. And I pray that that truth will compel us, will encourage us to remain and continue to be ambassadors of yours wherever we're at, no matter what we're facing. Help us to remember that we are indeed disciples, followers of the almighty incarnate and ultimate word of God, Jesus Christ. Would you stand with us? Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org slash connect to introduce yourself today.